In September of 2021, we looked into the world of bonds in a series of videos and articles for Fortune and Freedom. Back then, we claimed that, and I'm quoting, the bond market is now a lose-lose proposition. The bond market is a dangerous bubble, and at some point, we're going to see a panic of some sort in the bond market. This was based on the idea that real yields, meaning the returns that investors could expect adjusted for inflation, were so negative that the whole idea of investing in bonds was a lose-lose proposition, and therefore, at some point, there would have to be a significant correction, which meant that investors would sell their bonds, causing a crash in the price. Now, we don't get everything right at Fortune and Freedom, uh, to say the least, but boy, oh boy, did we get this one right. I'm joined by Rob Marstrand, who took us through the world of bonds last time back in September in that video. Rob, thanks for joining us again. Hi, Nick. How are you? Yeah, good. It's good to see you again. And uh, it's nice to see that we were so spot on about this. When I reviewed that video back in, in September, I've got to say it makes us look very clever. Um, we're going to link to it below this video somewhere so that uh, you know, readers can check out whether we, we uh, are accurate in claiming that we, we've called this so well. Before we dig into what has happened, why we predicted this, why, why it matters for, for really everyone in all sorts of weird and wonderful and surprising ways, let's just dig into the very basic idea of bonds because I've had some feedback for some, from some readers suggesting that you know, this is a bit confusing, um, the idea of yields and prices being inversely related and things like that. Can you take us through the, the very basics of what a bond is and how the price and the yield move inversely? Okay, yeah, sure. So a bond is a type of security, what's called a security. A security is a tradable investment. So when you buy shares in a company, you're buying what's called an equity security, which gives you a share of ownership in a company. And when you buy a bond, you're buying a debt security, which is a tradable type of loan. So let's get back to real basics. So if I was to lend you £100 for one year, and we make an agreement that you will pay me at the end of that one year, uh, £100 and you'll pay me £10 in interest. Now that could be created as a, as a loan, as a, as a bond, sorry, as a debt security. So that would have a £100 face value and at the point when, I, when the money is lent, when the security is issued, um, it would have a yield of 10%. Now let's say I then sell that claim over you to somebody else. So I trade the bond, I sell it, some other investor buys it. Now assuming they're still happy to receive 10% interest. This is assuming it's sold, bought and sold on the same day that, that, that we make the loan to you in the first place. So it's still a year to go, year to maturity. Now let's say they're still happy to uh, receive 10% interest. The thing will still trade at £100 and in a year's time they'll receive their £100 back plus the £10 of, of interest. And let's say for some reason market expectations change and suddenly all, bearing in mind there are lots of these things trading around, lots of bonds trading in the market, Let's say bond investors decide they want 5% over one year rather than 10%. For some reason, they require less return on their capital. What would happen is because that £100 is still by contract going to pay 100 plus 10 in a year's time, they would accept uh, only a 5% return rather than 10% return. So effectively, the, the bond price would go up by a large amount so that the amount of money that they receive at the end um, plus the £10 works out as a 5% yield rather than a 10% yield. Um, so that's by and large the basic principle of bonds. So, so if people require a lower return, the price of a bond will go up. If they require a higher return, the price of a bond will go down. Now that was a very simple example. 
Um, but obviously bonds can last much longer. So typically, let's say we take a, a, a UK government gilt-edged security or gilt, that might be issued for 30 years, let's say. Every six months, it will pay a coupon, what's called a coupon, which is one of the semi-annual interest payments. And at the end, you'll get your £100 back. And the way that the price of that bond moves will be looking at the timing and amounts of all of those different future cash flows, which are guaranteed by the debt security contract, um, and pricing it according to that. Um, and longer dated bonds, just a final point, longer dated bonds are more sensitive to changes in return requirements, to changes in yield, than shorter dated bonds. Something called duration, so long duration bonds are more price sensitive than short duration bonds. So I hope that, broadly uh, speaking, explains how it works. You were kind in your example. I'm going to mention the, the counter uh, example, which is, if a nasty rumor is spread about me that I will not be able to repay my 110 pounds to whoever it might be that owns that bond, then the price of the bond will fall because the, the credit worthiness is being questioned. So people don't want to buy that anymore. And one of the consequences of this is that whoever does buy the bond will get an even higher return. So they might buy the bond for 90 pounds and then get 110 pounds at the end of the year. So that the the return and the price are inversely related. They move in opposite directions. What I find strange about this is that people intuitively understand this when it comes to dividend-paying stocks. So the higher the price of the, the share, the lower the dividend return um, in a percentage term. And, and it's the same for bonds. If they're more expensive, then that, that return in terms of the interest becomes lower. Um, I hope that, that settles it uh, for the basics of bonds. Let's now review what we talked about in, in the video in September of 2021, as well as the articles at the time. And I know you wrote some articles even before that in UK Independent Wealth about why you were not going to recommend bonds in UK Independent Wealth. What were the key reasons? Well, essentially, um, bonds have been in a situation or in an environment of falling and benign inflation and falling interest rates since the early 80s. So if you were to have bought a very long dated bond in the early, date, early 80s that, that was only maturing today, you might have bought that with a yield that was somewhere in the sort of low to mid teens in terms of percentage return per year. And if you'd held that all the way through to maturity, you'd have made that sort of return. Now, that sort of return is a, is a stock market type return. In fact, it's better than the very long run um, track record of the stock market. So people have become used to this idea that bonds return uh, very generous amounts over that long period of time. And therefore, it made sense to diversify your portfolio between stocks and bonds. Both would return very healthy amounts over the long run. And um, also, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that they were uncorrelated assets, which meant that when the stock markets periodically crashed, bonds would go up and everyone would find that their portfolios weren't affected too badly overall. Now... We got to a point where yields were just absurdly low. I mean, literally trillions of pounds worth of bonds around the world were trading with negative yields. That means if you bought those bonds and owned them until they matured, until the, the principal, the original loan was paid back, you were guaranteed to get a negative return, which is obviously absurd. But even in instances like the UK where there might have been a slightly positive uh, yield, those yields were still extremely anemic, extremely low, and importantly, below any sensible 
long-term expectation for where inflation might go. And as inflation rises, and as I explained before, as bond investors change their expectations and their requirements for return, that would mean that bond, bond yields would have to go up and bond prices would have to go down, especially at the long end. So the, the longer dated loans, if you like, the longer dated bonds that don't mature for a long time that are sensitive to these moves. So I thought that combination of, of the sort of pathetic yields, um, even if nothing went wrong, even if inflation stayed, stayed low, even if expectations didn't change, made them sort of pointless. But if inflation went up, and already when we launched UK Independent Wealth in December 2020 and wrote about this very soon after that in January and later in that 2021 and later that year, the inflation risk clearly got bigger. You know, if that happens, and it has happened, bond prices collapse. And if you look at long-dated gilts, which are gilt-edged securities, UK government bonds, or US Treasury bonds issued by the US government, both of those are down, you know, the long end are both down kind of around 25% or more over those over sort of two years. Um, and there's been a very sharp drop this year as people have finally focused on inflation and realized it's not just a, a glitch. It's not going to pass in a couple of months and it could be around for a little time. To be clear, the safe part of people's portfolio and the risk-free asset of the world has fallen about 30%. Um, and, and that is a massive shocker. We're going to get to the implications of that. But I quickly want to mention well, one more. Let me just, let me just um, can I just pick up on that? Because that's an important piece of terminology in finance is people talk about the, the risk-free return is the yield on bonds issued by what's considered to be a safe government. Now, the, the reason it's called risk-free is because it's assumed that the worst comes to the worst the government can always raise taxes or print money to pay you back what they owe you. Uh, the reason it's not risk-free is that if it's issued with a very low yield, particularly, and if inflation expectations go up, and if the currency gets devalued, what you get back at the end will have a lot less buying power than what you lent in the first place. So it's, it's risk-free only in the sense that you'll, you will get your money back if they are issuing in their own currency. But it doesn't mean there aren't other risks, such as interest rate risk and inflation risk. So it's important that, that that's borne in mind. Let's quickly examine how things ran so far out of control in bond markets, because you, you can say it's irrational and, and, and it is, um, and, and it's crashed since. But why did bond prices overshoot so much? And I'm, I'm hinting here at the greater fool idea. Well, uh, the greater fool idea, of course, is that um, people assume that even if something's in a bubble, they can find a greater fool, if you like, to sell it to at a higher price at a later date. And of course, we see a lot of that in um, stock markets, uh, particularly in certain sectors of stock markets or in certain countries from time to time. Um, but bond markets are not immune to it. But in terms of how we got to where we are, I think there are multiple factors. Um, we can go all the way back, you know, 20 years or more to when China started emerging as a, a massive exporter to the world, which created deflationary pressures in the world, as in the prices of electronic goods, toys, clothes, and so forth, so forth, um, started falling. You know, clothes were a lot more expensive when I was growing up, when I was a teenager or in my 20s, and they're a lot cheaper now. Um, so are kids' toys. Um, and that created downwards pressure on overall inflation, which allowed central banks to keep interest rates below perhaps where they normally would have been. And this in turn allowed bond yields to fall. Then jumping to the global financial crisis, 
um, when all the world's banks or most of the world's big banks got in trouble. Um, central banks like the Federal Reserve in the US or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank and others um, to bail out the financial system effectively decided they needed to prop up asset markets. Now, as we've discussed, the way you prop up bond markets is by keeping yields down, which keeps the prices high. And they engaged in what's called quantitative easing, which is money creation or money printing, in quotes. It's not physical money, but it's money that gets deposited into, into bank accounts. And that money was directed at buying vast quantities of debt that were being issued by governments that had vast budget deficits. So they had to borrow to cover their costs. But the bond prices were, the bond yields were suppressed and the prices kept up. And then, you know, that's gone on for years. Uh, but inflation was benign because the, at the same time, the commercial banks were cutting back on their balance sheets and cutting the money supply. So central banks creating lots of money, commercial banks reducing money. But overall money supply didn't grow a lot. And then we got to the end of sort of 2019 and the commercial banks in, in the US and UK anyway uh, were in quite good shape again and were capable of lending and creating new money. You know, most money is normally created when someone extends a loan. You go for a mortgage, they give you a, a loan, and that's new money created. It goes into your bank account, you then pay the seller. And then the pandemic hit, and the governments hit the panic button, or rather the central banks, possibly guided by the governments, hit the panic button, and created vast amounts of new money very quickly. But the banks didn't shrink at that point. So the overall money supply increased dramatically. And I think in the US, over the last couple of years, you know, you're looking at bank deposits going, or just pre-pandemic to now, you're looking at bank deposits going up by something like 35 to 40%. Just let that sink in for a minute. The 35 to 40% more money in the US economy, even though the US economy, having fallen during the pandemic and then bounced back, is roughly about the same size. So it's not surprising you get inflation. There's a lot more money for the same size economy. And that's what we're seeing. And the UK is the same. The numbers are quite not quite so extreme. I think the UK money supply is up by something like, or bank deposits are up by something like 20 or 25% over that same period. But it's still a huge jump for what is essentially the same size economy. Meantime, central banks have been trying to, you know, printing all this money, suppressing the yields, keeping bond prices high. But now they're starting to draw back and everyone's realizing inflation is real. People are starting to sell off bonds. And that's why we're getting these big price falls um, happening over the last, uh, especially the last few months, but over the last two years. Yeah, inflation's popped up, the bond bubble. What makes this so interesting is that a bubble shouldn't happen in bonds because the outcome is is defined. You know you're going to get, at best case scenario, 110 pounds in a year. <laughs> so why would the price of a bond go so berserk? And, and that's what's bizarre about well, it. I should, I should add one thing, which is that there are a lot of effectively forced buyers in the bond market um, and regulations um, have increasingly made this necessary. So after the global financial crisis, for example, one of the things that, was, that happened to stop banks going bust in the future, at least in theory, is, is they have to hold much more, um, a, a much larger liquidity cushion, which means assets that can be quickly turned into cash if there's a bank run and they can pay back the depositors. Uh, and the thing that uh, they're heavily incentivized to own, of course, surprise, surprise, because it doesn't require any capital underpinning, is government bonds. So they buy tons of them and they have to, as they expand their balance sheets and expand their deposit bases, they have to buy effectively more and more government bonds. Um, 
insurance companies have to have solvency cushions to cover their potential future liabilities under regulations. And again, they want they want low risk um, low risk uh, bonds, uh, and they're forced to buy. Effectively, not forced, but they're pretty much heavily herded into government bonds. So this again creates buying pressure to keep the yields down. And the other one is pension funds. You know, the old corporate pension funds um, that are you know, there's been a big move to to try to match future cash payments with the future cash income that they're going to get. And because you know exactly when bonds are going to pay you, you in that security contract, you know exactly the timing and amount of all the cash payments. Pension funds often like to take out all the risk. They just buy loads and loads of bonds to cover their future pension liabilities. So they're kind of very heavily encouraged. And then you get into private pensions and private investment. And of course, financial advisors are heavily encouraged to put people into bonds because they're seen as a, a, a an important diversifier and as being low risk. And that's been true for the last 40 years. But my contention is that it hasn't been true for the last two years, at least, and it won't be true um, over the coming few years. And that was your contention in UK Independent Wealth when you wrote, much more likely, in my opinion, is that the government will try to inflate away the debt burden over time. In such a scenario, bond investors will lose a ton of money. This could happen either very quickly as bond prices drop sharply to reflect the new inflationary reality, or it could happen slowly if yields remain artificially suppressed by the Bank of England, thus propping up bond prices, which is, by the way, what's happening in Japan. Continuing the quote, though. But that way, investors would still lose the higher inflation, as in, as in higher inflation outstrips the low yields by an even greater amount than the current low inflation environment. Either way, I'm steering clear of bonds. So that was how you prepped your, your subscribers at UK Independent Wealth. What has happened since we made the video back in September of 2021? Uh, well, we've, we've uh, certainly had a lot of inflation and certainly bond prices have fallen sharply. Um, so I think that was on the nail, frankly. I mean, the, the yields at the time were, were really pathetic. Um, I think, um, I believe at that time that right across the UK gilt yield curve, all the yields were sub 1% back then. Um, and even a year ago, you know, I, I was looking at some numbers, um, you know, even a year ago, uh, a 10-year bond was yielding something like half a percent in, in the UK. And now that yield has gone up to around 2%. And hey, presto, um, yield prices have fallen dramatically. And that sounds like quite a small move, doesn't it? You know, your, a, a yield goes from half a percent to 2%. But when, when you're at that those very low yield levels, I don't want to get too technical, but, but something called duration goes up. And it, may, it what that essentially means is when duration is high, which is an allusion to, to how long dated the, the return, how far out into the future the, the actual cash flows will be um, measured in today's money. But um, when duration is high, uh, it means the bond prices are more sensitive to small moves in yields. And that's where we were. So you had... We went from that risk-free return. You may have heard this one, the risk-free return. It went to kind of return-free risk. So you weren't getting any any payback, any yield, but you were taking on plenty of risk for, for inflation or yields rising. Um, so it turned out to be quite right. And by the way, that was written in, um, that was published in December 2020, so nearly a year and a half ago. Um, and of course, we've also seen taxes go up, uh, thanks, to, thanks to the Chancellor. So uh, national insurance has gone up. And... Um, they're about to increase taxes on corporations uh, next year. They haven't gone back on that one yet. So both the tax and inflation things happen. 
Yeah, if, if we look at some of the statistics that are out there, uh, we had the 20-year the treasury ETF, which means you could buy this ETF and thereby invest in 20-year US government bonds. It's down 28.6%. Um, I think that, that was uh, from the 16th of April um, for the year, I believe. Um, seven to 10-year treasury ETF is down 15%. There's a Bloomberg aggregate bond index, which is a measure of global investment grade bonds. The value of that's down 5 trillion, according to Jim Bianco, Bianca Research. There's a German journalist called Holger Shepitz who puts the total losses of global investment grade bonds at 6.4 trillion. Now, if stock markets plunged enough to deliver losses of 6.4 trillion or 5 trillion or 28.6%, that would be front page news. It would be considered a big disaster, a big crisis, that you know, financial crisis has begun. And yet, there are very few, if any, headlines outside of the financial media about any of this. Why is that the case? Well, it's rather a mystery because something worth pointing out, which we haven't yet, is actually that the, the global bond market is bigger than the global stock market. Uh, I'm picking numbers a bit off the top of my head, but let's say uh, these are not exact numbers, but... Um, the global stock market is something like $100 trillion, something like that. It's a little bit more. And the global bond market is something like $150, 160000000000 trillion. So it's a bigger market, um, and yet it gets so, so little attention. Now, it may be because um, actually um, investing directly in bonds isn't, isn't made as easy for private investors as investing in stocks. Maybe no bad thing at the moment. Um, it may be because it's more of a sort of uh, inter-dealer type of market. There aren't so many easily quoted numbers. It's all done between people who set prices between them. It may be because journalists find it harder to write about. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why it doesn't get much attention. But it is important because going back to what we said about the way that advisors and fund managers and pension wrappers often default your investments to, if you've got a pension fund through your workplace or a, or a SIP or some other, other manner, chances are if you, if, if you haven't made a conscious decision to not be in bonds, the chances are you have a large allocation to bonds in there. Um, this is especially true if you're following one of these tick box lifestyle so-called plans, which as you move closer to the retirement age, move more and more of your money automatically into bonds to the point where you may end up with all of it in bonds. Um, now, I think that's absurd. I, it was absurd when yields were under 1%. It's still absurd when the yields are under 2%, when inflation's running at 7%, and the Bank of England's talking about double-digit inflation later in the year. To have all your pension money wrapped up in stuff that's yielding, say, 2%, when you might be retired for 20 or 30 years, strikes me as absurd. Um, over those time periods, there is no doubt that the stock market is almost always the better place to be. And you can generate, you know, you could have a portfolio of shares paying you 3, 4, 5%, even more dividend yield per year, growing dividends because the profits go up over time, although not predictable, but it will increase over the long run. Uh, or you can buy bonds at 2%, <laughs> you know, I'd much rather personally own shares. Now, you have to be able to put up with a bit of price volatility in the short term. Um, but anyway, going back to the point, anyone watching this, have a look at your pension. Have a look at the allocations in there. Have a look at how much is in bonds. 
have a look at how those bond investments have done over the last, say, two years. And you might be um, quite concerned and you might want to um, take some action to um, think about that and decide whether you want to find a better way to invest. Yeah, if ever there was a time to take back control of your finances or to, to have an awkward conversation with your financial advisor or fund manager about why there's money in bonds and what the logic behind it could possibly be, I think now is that time. Um, there will be some awkward silences on the other end of the phone. Let's move on to some, some more examples of why all of this matters. Um, you've mentioned this just the idea of capital losses for the investors in bonds. I quickly want to mention as well mortgages and the, the interest cost for for the government uh, for government you know, it's not just about yields it's also about somebody's got to be paying this interest yeah well uh, in the case of government um, the issue happens so let's say let's say uh, yield requirements in the market go up let's say the central banks do turn off the monetary tax for a bit and stop creating all this new money this QE money let's say yields go up now by the way, just a, a little data point. Uh, I was looking at something called the um, uh, Credit Suisse Annual Returns Yearbook, I think it's called, which is published every year, and it's a big survey of long-term historical returns. Um, I just need to check my notes here, but, um, you know, oh, oh yes, it's 1900 to 2021, so over those, more than a century. Um, the 10-year UK gilt had a real return, which means above inflation, of 1.8%. So the implication would be that if we expect inflation to be, for the sake of argument, 5% over the next 10 years, that gilt yields ought to be somewhere between 65 and 7%. But they're at 2%. So that means the bond market is massively mispriced. Um, now, if we go back to correct or historically average or whatever type of pricing and inflation is around 5% or even if it's around 3%, which is a kind of long run average. Um, let's say the government has to start borrowing at, at, uh, at 5 or 6% rather than 2% a year. Now, this only is a problem for normal fixed income, as they're called bonds, these, these bonds that pay fixed amounts, uh, when the government has to borrow new money. And of course, all these governments still have massive deficits or when their old bonds mature and they have to refinance potentially at a higher rate than they were paying before. Um, on the other hand, in the UK, there's quite a lot of index linked, what are called index linked bonds, um, which actually pay back money according to the inflation rate. Now, you can argue whether the inflation rate is accurate enough to adequately compensate you for real price rises. But what that means is the government's bill is going up as inflation increases what the government eventually has to pay back is going up and up and up and up and up. Um, so it, it, this could be a big problem for governments because debt levels are, are at stonkingly high levels at the moment across the entire developed world. You know, remember um, Gordon Brown um, had his golden rule of 40% debt to GDP, although I think they were gaming it a bit, but um, I suspect. Um, but now most developed countries are around the 100% debt to GDP level, they're still increasing that. And in some cases, it's much higher. Um, so yeah, government's going to be in trouble. I forget what the other the other part of the question was. It's mortgages. And I just want to clarify oh, here, yes, 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 there's a, the similarity 
between a bond and a mortgage. So a bond is a bit like, uh, what did they used to call them during the subprime boom? It's like a, a balloon repayment mortgage. That, that, so it's, in, it's an interest-only mortgage where at the end of the term, you have to repay the whole principal. So if you borrow 500,000 uh, pounds, 1% interest, you pay the 1% interest every every year or every month. And at the, at the end of the 30-year the term, you've got to repay the 500,000 pounds. That's what a bond is like. That's, that's the way it behaves. Whereas, so, so when the government is trying to handle its, its deficits and its debt, it only has to worry about new borrowings in terms of how the interest rates change. But mortgage borrowers have to worry about much more short-term shifts because they have floating rate mortgages. Yeah, no, this is Yeah, this is essential. Obviously, mortgages can be priced different ways. Um, you know, sometimes they're priced off the Bank of England bank rate or base rate, as it's more commonly called. Um, but often they're priced with reference to bond markets. That's slightly indirectly through some other mechanisms, but essentially bond yields will have an influence typically on mortgage rates. Now, those those lucky fellows over in the USA get to get 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And all the smart people a couple of years ago during the pandemic were locking in you know, 30-year rates at certainly less than 2%, and I think in some cases less than 1.5% possibly, uh, which is just extraordinary. But in the UK, that's not how it works. Uh, you can get a 10-year fix, but you tend to have, have to have quite a large portion of equity in the house already, which means the loan is a relatively low percentage of the house value. Um, and, and you will pay a higher rate uh, for those fixed rates. So most people are on, on either very short-term fixed rate mortgages or they're on variable rate mortgages. And uh, as inflation rises and rates rises, then mortgage interest payments will go up. And even if you have a fixed term deal, eventually that will come to an end and you'll have to refinance and you might be refinancing at a time where the rates are much higher. So a lot of people might be in for a shock in a few years time. And it's entirely possible, given what's happened to house prices and the, and the very, very elevated levels they're at, particularly in relation to incomes. I think I read the other day, I believe they're at record levels relative to average incomes. Um, if interest rate, if interest expenses on mortgages rocket, um, then that's both recessionary because it leaves people with less money to spend on anything else, as if they need that right now when energy prices and food prices is already rocketing. Um, and it's also likely to, um, to cause house prices to fall, all other things being equal. I mean, we never know what new scheme the government might cook up to prop up the market a bit longer and keep people priced out, keep young people priced out for even longer. But, um, you know, it's my contention that the reason the house prices are so high in the UK and many other countries is because mortgages are so cheap or have been so cheap up until now. And that's created easy borrowing and more money chasing um, those assets, which has bid up the prices. Along, you know, that's why we're in a sort of everything bubble. Um, if the cost of that money goes up, people won't be able to borrow so much and the prices come down. Um, or you get forced. A good example of this is, is back in 2018, I was trying to buy a house and I think I was offered a 1.49% two-year fixed mortgage. Um, and if, I, if I'd done that, what would be interesting about this? I didn't in the end because of the cladding disaster um, that's still unresolved, I believe, so that the bank wouldn't lend the money uh, because it, you know, it was one of those properties caught up in the cladding mess. But if I had borrowed that money, I would have 
now been facing a huge increase in my borrowing costs as interest rates rise. And this is really important because this is what triggered the 2007 collapse. It was adjustable rate mortgages. It was the sudden increase in interest rates on so many mortgages. So many people had borrowed at, at low rates for, for short terms uh, that would then ratchet up suddenly higher. And it just so happened that at the moment when a lot of those mortgages ratcheted up, interest rates from the central bank were rising. So it, it's, it's all very familiar um, story from, from 2007 and 2008. But this time it's, it's happening not just in the mortgage market, but in the government bond market, the corporate bond market, and it has implications therefore for the government borrowing and for corporate borrowing as well. Um, let's, let's finish with um, an, an unexpected and unusual twist. And I didn't warn you about this, but you wrote, um, I can't remember when you wrote this now actually, but uh, you wrote, uh, you want to be diversified, but you don't want to be in bonds. What then do you want to be in? Well, the reality is it's a very difficult investment environment. But the things I would suggest is um, a basket of shares that pay healthy dividends. So these are solid companies, um, preferably companies with low debts, because going back to what you were saying, it, companies with very high debts may suddenly find that their interest expenses start rocketing when they have to refinance those debts in the same way that governments might find the same. So shares of companies with low debts that pay good dividends um, and preferably that have high profit margins and that can raise their prices in an inflationary environment. And so some of the sort of consumer um, staples, consumer goods type stocks probably can do that. You probably want to have some exposure to commodity producers um, and at UK Independent Wealth, we have several of those investments at the moment that are all doing pretty well. Um, so across things like oil and gas, certain commodity producing countries may benefit uh, in this environment. Um, I think it's essential that people have an allocation to gold, um, which is a traditionally a good inflation hedge. And more recently, it's, people have been reminded it's also a crisis hedge following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's worth holding for the long term anyway, because um, big, very big populous countries are getting richer and richer people buy more jewellery and most gold goes into jewellery ultimately. So China and India over the long run are going to buy more gold, I, I believe. So it's worth owning um, as well. Gold mining shares, I believe are, which I know is something did your heart, uh, Nick, um, I believe are attractively priced relative to gold on a historic basis. Um, so I think that there's a there's room for that, but that's clearly a much riskier um, in terms of price volatility. Um, you'll see a lot more price volatility short term in gold mining shares than you would do in gold itself. So anyone that goes into that has to be aware of that. Um, so and and um, doesn't although although cash loses buying power, there's no harm having a bit of cash on the sidelines, um, which is like your sort of dry powder to fire off if there's a stock market crash and you can pick up really good companies at really good prices in the future. Um, so think of that as, um, as I say, as your dry powder or your ammunition to pick up bargains in the future, but it, it will lose, uh, you know, an inflationary environment with low interest rates, clearly it loses buying power. But what it doesn't do is go down in price, unlike long dated bonds, especially um, as yields rise. So I would say cash is a better place to be than, than bonds. So you go stocks, gold, commodities, gold miners, a bit of cash. 
Yeah, the only thing worse than cash in an inflationary environment is the promise of cash that will be paid in the future, which is a bond. So that uh, it's a way of highlighting that difference. And I think that's one of the key takeaways for investors going forward here is that the risk-free asset that was the foundation of the financial system that was highly predictable, had returned very good returns for the last 40 years, suddenly that's, that's cracked, that's become unstable. The prices have plunged, the real yields are still disastrous. And I think all of that money that was automatically flooding into the bond market based on all those presumptions that have been proven false, it's now going to have to go somewhere else. And the question is, where will it go? And, and that's a great discussion. And I think a lot of the things you've mentioned there, um, the right sorts of stocks, gold, uh, and, and a couple of, other, couple of other assets, that's where that money might end up flowing to. And that would be a massive shift in, in financial markets and in the presumptions of what fuel those financial markets. Rob, thanks for joining us. And to everyone at home, thanks for watching. Thank you.